0: Amen. Morning, church. Me again? Last time, I promise. I will leave you alone for for many, many weeks. And you don't have to hear me anymore. That will be a refresher. Tim will be back. So um, thanks for letting me do this. Y'all have a good week? Good, it's all right, you know, it's fine, whatever. Yeah, you guys are never really, you don't have much time to tell me how your week actually was, so we'll just pretend I, I, lo- thought I loved what you all did this week. So there you go. I'll take a moment to shout out my parents. They aren't here right now. They're, my dad works in another church. Today's their 40th wedding anniversary, so I'm just going to shout them out in case they li- listen online. Uh, cheers to mom and dad for doing that. That's rad. My dad always says, like, every. T- he's like, it's our 35th anniversary. Best five of the best years of my life. And so he always says things like that. It makes my mom really mad. So pretty funny. So uh, happy 40th anniversary, Mom and Dad. Psalm 62 is a, a wonderful little psalm. We read it just a moment ago. If you have a Bible, you can pull that out. You'll get a pen or if you use your smartphone, you can use that too. But Psalm 62 is, is truly a beautiful psalm as we just had it read to us. It's a different psalm than we've studied in the past. We've spent about five weeks studying Uh, Psalms with different attributes. We've looked at a psalm that deals with uh, gratitude, what it means to have gratitude toward God. We've looked at a psalm that's dealt with sin. We looked at a psalm that's dealt with trials and trouble that comes our way. And then uh, last week we looked at a psalm that dealt with fear and what it looks like with faith. And I thank you all for letting me uh, share a little bit of my story with you last week that was um, very terrifying for me, but yet fun to do it with a place that I love so much. So thank you. This week, we're looking at a psalm that has to do with uh, your and I's relationship with Jesus. And this is one of those psalms that we say things a lot in church. You hear a lot of ambiguous words. And one of these things is having a relationship with God. And you're like, yeah, okay. And we say that. We're like, do you ever like, yeah. But what does that mean? What does that look like? This is a psalm that really kind of spells what that could look like out for us. It's a wonderful, wonderful psalm. And uh, if you know anything about me at all, I like to know the background and what is going on when this psalm was written. David wrote this psalm, as he did with many of them. David had many mountaintop experiences in his life. Would you agree? Things that were really good and things that were on the mountains that were really bad. This psalm is written from the greatest of all of those experiences of David's life. Um, and maybe not in a good way. You see, David, when he was young, was attacked by a lion and a bear. So that's a pretty crazy experience. But this story is greater than that. He once fought a Philistine giant, but... This story is not about that. David was once a shepherd, and uh, someone came up and anointed this little shepherd boy to be the next king of Israel. That's a big moment, but David saw this situation as even bigger than that. He was once playing a harp in the kingdom, and Saul threw a spear at him and tried to kill him, so David had to run and hide in the hills, and this story is bigger than that to David. He, Saul died, and with Saul died, David's best friend Jonathan was killed in that same battle. And then David became king. He actually, the shepherd boy who was promised and experienced all this, actually became king. But this story to David was bigger than even that. We all know of his sin with Bathsheba. We talked about it and this mark on his life. But this story, bigger than that. David had several children, sons and daughters. And the son David had that was the most like him His name was Absalom. Say Absalom. Absalom, Absalom, yeah. Absalom was the son who was most like David. And Absalom was known as a very good-looking young man, a very handsome man. He was actually known for his hair. He had a full head of hair that grew an insane amount. He looked a lot like me. uh, Absalom, (laughs) Absalom would have his hair cut once a year. And when he would cut his hair, his hair would weigh five pounds every year at the haircut. The guy could grow some hair. I'm envious of this cat. Like, it was unreal. Absalom was known as a handsome man. He was the one who was most like David. Now, some crazy things happened in Absalom's life, and he ended up actually killing a man. And after he killed this man, he ran. For three years, he hid in exile. And every day that he was gone, Scripture says that every day, every single day, David would weep for his son Absalom. He missed him so. After three years, David sends for him again. And Absalom comes home. But Absalom doesn't come home. He goes to the house he was living in before he left. He doesn't actually see David. And two years pass before he sees David. So Absalom cries. And he sends a messenger to the palace. And he's like, hey, why did I come home? I would have been better off where I was. I've been home for two years. Why didn't I just stay out in the land that I was in? I want to see my dad. Like I ran before this. I was afraid, that I was afraid from dad. I was scared of dad. Dad wanted me home. And I haven't seen dad. I want to see my dad. So David's like, okay, and he brings him to the kingdom. And when Absalom gets there, David rushes to him, and he kisses him, and he welcomes him home. You see, but we have a little inkling of Absalom's heart there. You see, the king welcomed him back home, but that wasn't enough for Absalom. He wanted dad, but he didn't just want dad. He he wanted what came with knowing dad and being dad's kid. When you're the king's son, things are a little bit easier for you. Life is a little bit better and sweeter for you. This is what Absalom wanted. And throughout time, he began to do things that were not okay. Absalom began to grow to think, I could do things better than dad. Better looking than dad, smarter than dad, can do things. Any dads out here that have kids that think this way a little bit? you know, I can do things a little bit better than dad. Yeah, sure you can. Um, So he begins to do things that the king would normally do. And he begins putting these little ideas in the people of Israel's mind that he could be a better king than David. See, because David was an old man at the end of the story. David had grown in years, and he was um, in the last quarter of his life. And then the day came that Absalom led a rebellion against his father, and he claimed to be the new king. Now, you see, you can't have a new king unless the old king is, you know, he's not around anymore. So Absalom gets this massive group of followers that once were shouting for David and now we're shouting another thing, which is funny to think that these people's great, great, great grandkids would one time in one week go from shouting Hosanna to crucify him. It's like it was genetic. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so they're now shouting for another king and they want this Absalom. So David hears of this rebellion against him and he gathers his family and the closest people with him and David now is running back to the hills and the caves that he spent all of his time in the youth, his youth doing. David now finds himself in the exact same spots, but as an old man. And if you look in 2 Samuel and see the verse, it says, As David went, he wept the entire journey. And all those that were with David wept as well. Now, if you fast forward a little bit in the story, you find this conflict. Absalom's men are hunting for David, and David's men are hunting for Absalom, and they're trying to, like, jostling for the kingdom. And David is upset. Not only has he lost the kingdom, but he's lost his son. And this battle is happening, and all of a sudden, in the irony of ironies, Absalom and his men are walking through the forest, and his luscious, thick uh, Fabio hair gets caught in an oak tree. This is real. Like, those of you who think the Bible's boring, read the Bible. Like, he's walking, and he's on a mule, and his hair gets caught in a branch. And it says, in the Bible's descriptive, and the mule kept riding, and Absalom hung there, like, oh, 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 wait, wait a minute. Like, like, his legs are dangling and kicking away. Like, and he's, hanging in, and he's hanging in a tree, and no one's there to help him. And he's like, guys, what's going on? What's going on? And he's stuck by his hair. David's men hear where he's hanging. Now, David had given an order to his men. Yeah. David who had just been overthrown by people who were his closest allies, including his son. And David's words were, show mercy on these young men, especially my son Absalom. But one of David's generals ignored him. He goes around the corner and he sees Absalom kicking away in a tree, hanging by his hair, puts a spear right through him. And men come and they kill Absalom. David lets out a cry. that scriptures say is a cry unlike anything he had ever released. And he says, Absalom... Absalom, oh my Absalom, rather it be I that have died than you, my son Absalom. This all takes place about five chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. There are literally thousands of lessons we can learn from them, and we're going to walk through them all this morning. Just kidding. Uh, we don't have time. Unbelievable story. There's things we could pull about, man, there's nothing your kids could ever do to make you love them less when you agree, parents. <laughs> nothing. We weep for our children. There's this idea that David was weeping not because his son had died, but because son, his son had turned from, the, turned from God and then died and wouldn't get to turn back. There's just all these layers of the story. This psalm was written in the time when David was fleeing the kingdom and crying. This, is, this psalm takes place from the moment that Absalom declares himself the new king and they full, put a full-on rebellion against the king. So David gathers the closest to him and they run from the palace. And while he's running away, he writes this psalm that David claims the greatest crisis in all of his life. We find this psalm. Let's dive into it, shall we? You ready to go? <sighs> Lord Jesus, speak to us now. May your word speak loud and clear. May you change the way we are today. May we walk out of this room a little bit differently than the way we walked in. Or we may may we make the hard choice not to. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning in your name. Amen. Psalm 62, it says... Truly, my soul waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. those words have a little bit more strength? Now we know what's going on. Would you agree? Yeah, he says, my soul waits. Now when problems come up in our lives, the natural state of our minds, when you're dealing with something at work, at home, uh, at school, wherever you are, what do you want to do in your brain? Fix it. All right? Any you have a spouse that wants to fix your problems? Like, my wife sometimes, she's like, I just want to talk to you about it. I'm like, but how do we fix this? And she's like, shh, don't try to solve it. Your ideas aren't that good anyways. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, but what if? No, 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 no. Our natural state is we want to fix things, solve things when there's a problem. But what is David's response here? What does he want to do? Wait. Rest. He says, my soul waits on the Lord. Now waiting is another one of those ambiguous phrases. Do you have a relationship with God? What does that mean? Wait on the Lord. What does that mean? Like, hey God, uh, can I have this? And you were waiting for him to go, yes. You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? This is what the Bible teaches us. How do you and I wait on the Lord? And this is a lesson that I learned in the past couple years as I've dealt with my anxiety and things like this. How do we wait on the Lord? Scripture tells us that we position ourselves under God's waterfall of grace and we wait while we walk in obedience. How do you wait on the Lord? You walk in obedience. You take things one day at a time, one step at a time, asking God to give you strength, asking God to renew the joy of your salvation, asking God to make him your treasure and you wait While you stay obedient, walk in obedience. Why? Because those who wait on the Lord, He will renew their strength. What does Scripture say? It says, They will mount up on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary, walk and not grow faint. Friends, how do we wait on the Lord? Truly, my soul waits on the Lord. You walk in obedience. And this goes beyond it. It says, my soul silently waits. It reminds me of Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah when he has to build this altar and he covers it with water? God sends down fire and burns it all up and he runs really fast as all these crazy things happen. And he's waiting to hear from God. And all these events happen. Like there's this huge burst of fire and there's this wind and an earthquake. But God isn't in all those things. And that's where we're looking for God, right? When we're waiting on God, we're looking for the big giant sign that we see in the Bible, right? Like, show me the big thing, God. But after all of these things happen, what happens? There's this huge silence. And God spoke to Elijah out of the quiet silence. Friends, truly our soul waiting on Elijah. You gotta walk in obedience and stop trying to solve it yourself. Be quiet while you walk in obedience. Wait on the Lord. It says, From him comes my salvation. Psalm 62 is this. Horrible, horrible thing. And if you were to read this psalm, it is full of two things trust and faith. There is no fear in this psalm, there is no despair in this psalm. And the craziest part of all of it, there's not one single petition in this entire psalm. The worst event in David's life, he never asked God for a thing in the psalm. Sometimes we should ask God for things. But sometimes we need to trust and remember that he has you, that God has you. We say that a lot here. Tim says it a lot. I remember the first time he said, it, hey, do you remember that God has you? This morning, church, let's, not, let's step out of the sermon. Let me talk to you right now where you're sitting. Do you remember this morning that God has you? He's got you. Last week, we looked at Psalm 56, and it said, if God is for us, who could stand against us? Who could possibly, scripture says, who could bring a charge against you? You're mine. What court could they possibly charge you all in? Everything's God's. And He's got you. Salvation comes from God. It says, He only, this is an important word, underline the only, only, He only is my rock and my salvation. There's layers to this, so let's dig a little bit. Um, In an old, old story, there's a a man named Job, okay? You all know the story of Job, right? He's a very wealthy man. He's got lots of cash. He's got lots of cattle. He's got a house full of kids, all sorts of possessions. And then some crazy turns of events happen, and he loses all of his money. All of his cattle die in a horrible accident. His kids are killed. And he finds himself sitting on a pile of ashes, basically, covered in sores. And he's scraping the sores with some broken pottery. And his wife looks at him, and she's like, are you still holding on to hope? Curse God and die, Job. So Job begins to do something. He begins to look for hope, salvation, and rock, and other people. Job's three friends come along, and they each take turns telling their reasons why they think these bad things have happened to Job. And he begins to buy into that, and he's like, yeah, you know, you're right. And then he turns to God, and he's like, "What, what is going on? Like, give me a break. What is the deal? Job, for a split second, he forgot that. What does it say here in this passage? He only is my rock and my salvation. See, you know what I'm guilty of the most? I'm guilty of looking um, for my wife as my rock. I call my dad to be my rock. I look to some of you as my rock. I look at, I look at, when I have a really bad day, I call Ryan Moore, my friend here. Just, he's my rock. These things are good things, but what does David say? Who alone is his rock? God. You see, why am I quick to take things to Casey, my dad, Ryan, Tim, Stephen? These are the people I call. Why do I take things to them first? Before we take it to God, David is like, there are a lot of people I thought I could turn to, and guess what just happened? God alone is your rock and your salvation. It says, this is a great line, he is my defense. This is one of those lines we read in a psalm, and we're like, that sounds wonderful. God is my defense. Claiming God as our defense is meaningless unless we actually dwell within his defense. Me, God being a defense is one thing, but if we aren't dwelling within the defense of God, it does nothing for us. What do I mean by that? It's, it's us being a church, of, a group of people that says, God, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. Wherever you are, God, that's where I want my heart. Wherever you are, God, that's where I want my passions. Wherever you are, God, that's where I want my thoughts. Wherever you are, God, that's where I want my kids. God, wherever you are, that's where I want to dwell. I want to dwell in the defense of the Father. And the truth is, is we put all our thoughts and things and passions of other things in this world. If we want God to be our defense, we've got to seek him out. God, where are you? That's where I want to be. Where are you in my life? If I'm looking at my life in the direction that I'm going and God isn't in it, then he isn't our defense in that. I want to dwell in the defense of God. I want to seek him out wherever he is. That's where I want my thoughts. That's where I want my passions. That's where I want my direction. That's where I want my hope. That's where I want my peace. I'm going to find it in the defense of the Father. But we've got to be where God is. If I'm living life for me, doing things that God isn't for, he's not my defense in that. I have to dwell Within him. We've got to move on. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you. Do you understand now that you know the background? You kind of get what he's talking about right now, right? It says, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. There are so many people that want to bring down the people of God. They want to bring I believe people do often do this. They want to bring down people of God because it makes them feel um, less insecure about their own shortcomings. You see, it's a lot easier, and and this isn't just not people of God. Isn't it easy for you and me to look at the person that's doing things and just point out? It's like David was this giant white canvas with that little red dot in the middle, and you don't see any of the white, you're just drawn to the little red dot. You know what I'm saying? It's like an episode of Seinfeld where there's a dot on the sweater. Any Seinfeld people? No? Anyways, um, that's all anyone sees. A wonderful cashmere sweater with a little red dot It's ruined. This is what people do. This is what we do. Do we not? These people develop, And we focus on that one thing that's wrong, and that's what these people are doing. But how could David be your king? Look what he did with Bathsheba. He has no right. Absalom, you would never do that. And he's like, you're right, I wouldn't. My dad's the worst. I should do it. Yeah, you should. People are so quick to bring down the people of God, but it's often just to hide our own insecurities about our own shortcomings. Next verse. My soul waits silently for God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Haven't you heard this before, like two verses ago? Like, note the repetition here. You see, David trusted God, but he also had to remind himself of that. This psalm is good for us this morning. But you need to remember it tomorrow. Hearing that God is your refuge on Sunday morning when you know you're going to be at church is great. Remembering it tomorrow when the world hits you and you're feeling down and struggling, that's when it's important. We need to remind ourselves of the things of God. Listen, you and I are going to use up a lot of God's mercy today. Would you agree? I'm going to use up a lot of it. And it's good to remind myself that the Bible tells me that his mercies are new every morning. Thank goodness I'm going to need a lot of it tomorrow too. His mercies are new every morning. We've got to remind ourselves. It says, uh, right there in verse 5, it says, My soul <coughs> waits silently for God alone. God alone. There's a quote that says, uh, The man who trusts not in God alone trusts not in God at all. There is a false sense of trust that we can do that will catch us. And I think is what I'm guilty of a lot. I think a lot of us are. It gives the example of like if if the man has one foot on a rock and one foot in quicksand, he's going to sink just as the man who has both feet in quicksand. Look, if our trust is in God for the most part, but man also, we will always fail. We will be like Job. We will be quick to run. When God isn't answering and we don't know how to wait because our trust isn't only in God alone, then we will look to man just as Job did. God's unanswering, so I'm going to look over here. Guess what? I'm going to start finding my salvation and my rock and my refuge in man, who will always fail us. See, we have to trust in God alone. Trusting in God and hoping in people is a horrible endeavor. We have to trust in God alone. we got to be patient, friends. That's why he starts it with, I will wait. David didn't have his answer to this problem when he wrote this psalm, did he? He understood that I gotta wait. I gotta wait on the Lord, trust in Him alone. Even though my answer isn't coming, I can't turn back to man. They will always fail me. I got to wait, be patient. It says, "He only." There it is again. Only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be. I shall not be moved. Note this in verse two. He says, "I shall not be greatly moved." And right here, he says, "I shall not be moved at all." It's as if the repetition gave him more confidence. The more we wait on the Lord and remain obedient to him, the more confident we become that he will answer us. We just gotta be patient. This reminds me so much of people in church. You see, we need to remind ourselves to be patient and steadfast in prayer. But what I see in the church is people getting impatient with this church and impatient with this church. In fact, I was listening to a pastor a few years ago and he said there was a couple that came and talked to him and they are like, you know, we're leaving your church and we're here to tell you why we're leaving here because we just don't feel like we're getting fed. And he's like, I had just had enough. And I said the wrong thing, but I looked at them and I was like, you don't need to be fed, you're fat. And they were like, what? And he goes, you need to go and exercise your faith. You come in this church and you get fed and all you are is fat. Go exercise your faith. You see, church, what we've done is we've become spiritual bulimics. We come in here on Sunday mornings and we eat the worship up and we eat the community up and we eat the group of friends up, and then we eat the prayer time up, and we eat the sermons up, and we eat the Word of God up, and we go home on Sunday afternoon, and we puke it all back up, and we starve ourselves the rest of the week. The last meal you had, when's the last time you spent time in the Word? If it was Psalm 56 last Sunday, that's a problem. We've become spiritual bulimics. When's the last time you worshipped God? If it was the last song we sang last week, we got a problem of uh, spiritual bulimics. We can't starve ourselves the rest of the week. That's not walking in obedience. This is a Sunday to Sunday life that we're living. We're trusting in God alone. We've got to feed ourselves a healthy diet of the Lord. We've got to spend time with Him. We've got to meet with Him. We can't leave here and get home at 3 p.m. And, and then starve ourselves the rest of the week. We've got to walk in obedience. Patiently walk with the Lord. Verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. David felt was good for him would be good for the other people. Let's say, trust in the Lord, you people. Our faith in God should compel us to tell other people about Jesus. What God is doing in our lives should compel us to tell other people what God is doing in our lives. My wife and I talk about all the time about the questions that we ask people. The questions we ask people direct the conversations that we have. And what happens when you see someone? You say, hey, how are things? Here, you want me to give you your answers to everyone you're going to meet this week? How are things? Here's their answer. Good? Busy? There's your answer. And you know what you he- think about when they say good and busy? You're like, you're busy. What do you begin to think about? All the things that make your life busy. Well, i got to do this, and i got to do this, i got to do this. And that's what's on our minds. I know this is weird, but what if instead of saying, how are things, we walked up and said, hey, what's God doing in your life? You know what they're going to think about? What God's doing in their life. And when they tell you about what God's doing in their life, you know what you're going to think about? What God's doing in your life. And you're both going to be encouraged. You're both going to be affirmed that God's doing things in your life and the lives of people you care about. you know what that's going to make you want to do? Tell other people about Jesus. And isn't that the goal of why we're on the planet? It's as simple as changing the questions that we ask. If I see somebody I love and I walk up and go, I want to hear about how busy you are. I want to hear what God's doing in your life. I want to share with you what God's doing in mine makes us think about the questions that we ask. There's a verse to underline in your Bible. If you've never done it before, I'm going to have you underline Psalm 62, 8. It says, pour out your heart before him. There's one thing you have heard, and one thing I guarantee that you've thought. I may not know you, but I know you've had this thought. Is that your struggles and the things you're walking through, you don't feel like God cares about your little things. Or my problems are too small and insignificant to take to God. He's got bigger and better things to think about. Well, Psalm 62.8 says, that's not true. Psalm 62.8 says, pour out your hearts before God. God wants your joy. God wants your hope. God wants your happiness. He wants your sorrow. He wants your sin. He wants every little part of you poured out before him. If you ever, ever, ever are having that thought that I should take something before God, but it's too little, too menial, God has bigger and better things to think about, I would say that's untrue. Psalm 62, 8 says, pour out your heart, all of it. It doesn't say pour out the most important things of your heart, the most serious parts, the most dangerous parts. No, it says pour out your whole, all of your heart before God. Pour it all out, all of it. God is a refuge for us at the end of verse 8. God is a refuge for us. I'm going to say this again. God is only a refuge for us if we allow him to be. God is not your refuge if you don't allow him to be. We have to go to God. And isn't it baffling that we don't? Like when we put it so black and white, like God is our refuge if we allow him to be. And I ask you, do you want God to be your refuge? I I think I would get 100% of yeses. If I got the one no, it's the funny guy. Well done. Good joke. You know what I mean? But if I ask you, you're saying Yes. And yet it baffles me. Like like we have a stage that we call an altar. And every Sunday we have somebody up front who we say, we would love to pray with you. We have just given a message and we want to invite you to come and pray at an altar and communicate with the God of the universe, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who, as we've studied throughout the Psalms, says things like, my ear is open and wants to hear you. Pour out your heart before me. And I, and I'm talking to Caleb, I honestly sit in those seats every week when Tim says at the end of a sermon, and I actually convince myself of a reason, well, I'm already here. I'm literally already at church. I'm engaging with God. I'm listening here. And I actually come up with a reason of why I'm not going to go talk to the God of the universe. Isn't that kind of fundamentally insane? Like you have an opportunity to a God that says, pour out your heart to me, and we go, no, I might feel a little awkward, weird, that's uncomfortable, like, I don't get it, I don't get what keeps Caleb in my seat every week, Like, I cannot for the life of me figure out why I have an opportunity to pour out my heart before God and engage with the God of the universe who spoke things from existence and wants to meet with me as we've studied throughout all the Psalms. He says, my ear is open. I want to hear you, pour out your heart to me. And we convince ourselves of a reason not to. That is baffling. He is your refuge if you want him to be. He's your rock if you go to him. He'll be your salvation all you have to do is ask. The price has already been paid. It's on the table. It's yours. Do you want it? And we say, no. It says, surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Don't trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. In riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Look, we ha- it's not that men can do nothing for us. It's that we can't put our hope in them. You see that people are good and kind and will help you, but our hope can't be in it. our hope must remain in Christ, because it says, "Don't trust in oppression nor vainly hope in robbery." David is saying, "Look, it doesn't matter what position somebody has. A position that somebody has is not a reflection of their character. All that matters, all that matters, all that matters is your heart. That's it. Your position? Eh. There are ways to gain position. I mean, you're somebody at work that's played the game a way you don't want to play. That's raised to a position higher than you." play that game. Keep your heart right. Keep it right. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Um, some of the joyous memories of my life come from a time my wife and I lived in 375 square feet in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, I, we not had not a dime to our name. Most nights I had a Diet Dr. Pepper and a, pe- and a tortilla and slapped some peanut butter on that bad boy. And the whole time I was in that situation, all I thought was if I had a little more, we'd be happier. If I had a little more room, if I could take 12 steps instead of 11, I, I would be a lot happier in the house that I lived. If I had a little bit better things that you have, I, and, I, and now I look back, and I'm like, man, I missed everything that God was showing me in those times. There's nothing wrong with increasing riches, ha- providing for your family. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are three ways we can put our hearts, set our hearts on riches. One is to take excessive pleasure in our riches. To make riches your source of joy, we got a problem. Don't do it. The second way is if we place our hope and security in the riches of this world. Don't do it. And the third thing is is if we grow proud or arrogant in our riches. Charles Spurgeon, this brilliant theologian, he said, Riches are but transient things, therefore they should hold but our transient thoughts. I just love it. Um, It ends like this, verse 11. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. You remember Job. I'm just talking about him, right? He begins to hear from his friends, and he calls out to God. He just kind of lets him have it. And then God does something that he rarely does in the Bible. God speaks back, which is awesome and terrifying. It says when God speaks, God speaks out of the whirlwind. God speaks out of the storm. So Job just put his hope in man, his trust in man. He is trusting God, but also man. So he turns, like, God, why did you do this? And, and God says something. He said, Job, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you, and you are going to answer me. I would imagine he soiled his toga after he said that. But he said, God says things to Job. He says things like, hey, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Job, where were you when I stretched out its dimensions? Surely you know, for you were already born, for you have lived so many years, which is hilarious that God is uh, a little, uh, can exaggerate. I love it. He says to Job, He goes, Hey, Job, where do I put the hail? Where do I store the hail, Job? Do you know? Hey, Job, when the wind hits you and blows away, where does it go? Tell me, Job, do you know where it goes? Who watches over the fawn when it gives birth, Job? Who, who seeks after the foxes? Hey, Job, uh, when the lion needs something to eat, who provides its food, Job? Job, who tells the lightning where to go, Job? Tell me, Job, tell me. And God speaks for three chapters and just lets him have it. And then when God stopped. Job answered God. And you know how he answered him? He said, I spoke once and I have no answer. Twice and I will say no more. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. And that's what he did. David is thinking about Job. And he, listen to this, he says, God spoke once. Twice I've heard that power belongs to God. I'm not going to make the same mistake Job did. God spoke once. I heard him twice. Job forgot, Job lost sight. Of his trust in God. So God revealed his power, his promises, and his provision. And David was fully aware of that. God spoke once, twice I heard it. That power belongs to God. But God doesn't just have power, friends. It gets better than that. As powerful and mighty as our God is, it gets even better. It says that also to you belongs what? Mercy. Mercy. David understood that mercy came from God. So when the men in his life failed him, his son... Failed him. Those in the kingdom failed him. He wasn't surprised. Mercy comes from God alone. But this is the cool part. David understood that God has all the power in all the world. And you know what God uses that power for, friends? To love you and me. That should knock you down. God has all the power in all the world. And he uses that power for one thing and one thing only. To love you and I. What a beautiful psalm. Don't you agree? What do we do with this psalm? Well, my prayer is that this psalm would encourage and inspire you all to pour out your heart before the Lord. That if you need God to be your rock, you would pour it out. This psalm, friends, should inspire you to blow the lid off of your prayer life. It doesn't matter about saying it the right way or getting the words right or technically sound. This psalm should inspire us to pour out our heart before God. It should inspire us to use the altars in our life, whether they're here on a Sunday morning, at home in a quiet space, driving in your car to just shut off the stereo and use that time to pour out your heart before God. If you think about where David was and the things going on in his life, and he used that moment, to cry out and say, God, you're my rock, my king, my salvation, my refuge, my hope. This isn't a psalm we look at and be like, I want, I want God to be that rock to me. I don't, want, I don't want David's rock. I don't want David's salvation. I want Caleb's. I want God to be Caleb's rock. I want God to be Caleb's refuge. I want God to be Caleb's help, Caleb's joy, Caleb's peace, Caleb's hope. But it isn't that way unless I go to him. We have to go to God. That's what a relationship is. He did everything he possibly could by sending his own son to die on a cross. And now he sent us. And we are honestly going to sit in our seats this morning and go throughout our week and convince ourselves of reasons not to pour your heart out to the Father. How baffling is that? So this morning we're going to give you an opportunity, as we do every single week, to pour out your heart to God. Our altar will be open. Some of our prayer team will be here. Tim will be here. Christy will be here. Leslie will be here. We would love to pray for you. Pray with you. I'd love to stand by you as you pour out your heart before the Father. We're going to sing a song. Maybe you want to pour out your heart through worship. But we, I say it every time I'm here, I want us to leave the room a little bit differently or choose not to. This morning you have an opportunity to pour out your heart before Him. To not be spiritual believing, but to be filled with up with the goodness of God. So would you bow your heads? But we're going to give you space to pour out your heart as we sing. and You can do that right where you're sitting. If you want to do it right where you're sitting, pour it out. If you want to come up to the altar, come up. If you want to stand and worship and pour out your heart through worship, pour out. But pour out by saying, God, Claim Him what you need Him to be. Don't leave here needing God to be your rock without asking Him to be your rock. Don't leave here. If, you can't, if you're out there and you've, you're saying, I can't claim God as my salvation because He's never been that, then, friend, cry out to God today and ask Him to be your salvation. Put your trust and your faith in Him and He will rescue you. This morning, my prayer is that Psalm 62 would inspire you to pour out your heart before him because he is all of those things, David said. He is your rock. He is your refuge. He is your hope. He is your joy. He is your mercy. He is your love. He is your passions. He is your direction. He is your future. He is your past. Pour out your heart before him. God, we give you this time and this space. I pray that we don't walk out of here the same way we walked in. I pray that we seize an opportunity to pour out our hearts before you through worship, through prayer. We thank you that you are everything that you claim to be. We give you this time.